From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Results are due this week from the first round of tests of air quality near the Sterigenics plant in Smyrna. A 2018 report from the EPA showed that the Sterigenics plant there and BD Bard facility in Covington have for years been emitting a carcinogenic gas at levels high enough to produce an elevated risk of cancer in those communities. The EPA posted that report online, but never sounded the alarm to people who live near the plants. Well, in July of this year, Andy Miller of Georgia Health News and Brenda Goodman of WebMD broke the story. Reaction from citizens groups has been robust, and Andy and Brenda join us for an update as a community air quality oversight meeting is preparing to meet in Smyrna at 11 this morning. Brenda, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having us. And Andy, great to have you back. Good to be here. All right, so public officials, of course, responding as well, and Greg Bluestein and his colleagues at the AJC have been following that story and calling for more. Greg is a regular on GPB's Political Rewind. Great to have you with us in the morning, Greg. Thanks for having me. So, Andy, I'm going to start with you because your reporting really did set off a firestorm among residents and affected communities, regulators and lawmakers at all levels now involved. So quick fact check here. The EPA, EPA report predicted effects of exposure to toxin. This was not a measurement of chemicals in the air here in Georgia or other parts of the country. So do we have an accurate measurement of how much ethylene oxide this chemical is in the air here? Well, we don't, Virginia, and uh, that's part of the drive for independent air testing, not only in Smyrna, but in Covington, uh, to find out what, what is out there. And also, there's a drive to figure out what, how much ethylene oxide is, is everywhere, not just in these particular areas, but in downtown Atlanta, Macon, rural Georgia, whatever. And we don't really have a good grasp of, of what the levels are. So some actions are being taken on that, which I'll get to in just a minute. But Brenda, first, your degree is in science and environmental reporting. So drawing on your expertise there, what does having this toxin, ethylene oxide, in the air, what does that mean for the health of residents on the ground? Well, as you might imagine, it's not good. Um, it's a toxic, toxic, toxic gas, so it's um, toxic to your DNA. It's a mutagen. Um, and it, what that means is that when it comes into contact with your DNA, it can scramble it and cause cancer. And it does this in very small amounts, very tiny amounts. And it looks like this exposure in the communities has been happening for decades. So part of your reporting was trying to get some figures on or, or data on incidences of cancer in these census tracts that were outlined in the EPA report. Did you find anything conclusive? Well, the federal government has modeled some emissions data that was self-reported by the companies and based on the federal government's modeling um, in the Smyrna, Fulton, Cobb area, it's kind of a um, an unincorpor- unincorporated area of Cobb County where the sterogenics plant is. There are about 70 cases of cancer um, for every 1 million people exposed over the course of their lifetime, and that exposure is, they estimate, due to ethylene oxide. Um, in the Covington area, it goes up to 170 cases for a million people exposed over the course of their lifetime. So compared to averages, what is that? So the EPA gets concerned about cancer risk from uh, from an environmental chemical um, when it's over um, uh, 100 in a million cases exposed over the course of their lifetime. Okay. Um, so it's so averages one in three of us will get cancer in our lifetimes. It's very common. Um, and this is in addition to that lifetime risk that we have. And it's because it's from pollution. It's something that 
we should be able to control. So, Andy, you mentioned there are air quality tests being called for. Smyrna, Atlanta, and Cobb County have teamed up to pay GHD services to install monitors to measure this toxin and others in the air. This is the same company that performed independent tests near another sterogenics plant, this one near Chicago. So at this point, the company has about a week to analyze the data. Why only a week? Well, it, it's interesting. They did take... Uh, they did take samples, but we know that while they took samples, the sterogenics plant was shut down. So what they're going to be sampling is really air that would be normally there. I mean, there might be some residue uh, from emissions from sterogenics. So uh, the residents of that community really are going to have a hard time figuring out what was in the air a year ago or five years ago. Uh, Sterogenics is now working on some improvements to its processes to, to reduce the amount of ethylene oxide it releases. And they hope to get that done by sometime next month, and then the plant will reopen. So the, the Sterogenics says that it is closed down for construction in order to upgrade its emissions mechanisms. But this is just as the mm -hmm. air monitors are going up. And Greg, you reported that Governor Kemp was not happy with that timing. What happened there? Yeah, this is about as scathing as a comment I've seen from Governor Kemp's official office since he was, took office in January. Um, the governor's office said that the company has not uh, operated with adequate transparency. And because of that, they inexplicably and that's a strong word they use. Inexplicably, state officials were afforded almost no time to vet its feasibility before the company announced these plans. So the governor's office is very upset that they didn't get a chance, that state environmental regulators didn't get a chance to see if the plan to shut down the plant and install these new pollution controls was actually going to do what the company said it would do. It was a pretty blistering criticism there. And Governor Kemp did meet with Sterogenics executives. This was shortly after the story broke. The AJC reported that the company failed at that time to disclose a leak and an evacuation of the plant that happened shortly before. What, how did you discover that at AJC and what happened? Yeah, I think uh, one of my colleagues, Maris Lutz, got a tip about it, went to the state environmental department and, and told them about it, and they told the governor's office about it, which sparked a very strong reaction. Um, essentially, they sent a team of, of hazardous response team to go investigate the plant right after that. The governor's office was, was um, from what I understand, furious that at this meeting where all the cards are supposed to be on the table, everyone was supposed to speak frankly and honestly and transparently about what was happening, um, that they had not disclosed this, this previous link, the leak, I should say. And this also came a day after the governor said he would not use any of the state powers to shut down the plant. So I think the governor saw this as a betrayal of trust and a betrayal of transparency. What's that going to do? This revelation to do to the governor's relationship with the company that he was praising for turning things around. Exactly. I mean, when he started this, uh, this was the company that voluntarily agreed to, to sign a consent agreement, whereas uh, the, the, the company BD Bard uh, that operates the other plant that we're, we're, we're going to talk about later um, did not originally initially signed any sort of consent uh, agreement. So this was the company, Sterogenics, that the governor had upheld as the model. And then, you know, as it turned out, now he's furious with them for not disclosing as much as they should have. Yeah, we'll get to B.D. Bard in just a minute, but we're getting an update on the response in general to a story of high levels of ethylene oxide. This is a toxic gas emitted from a sterogenics plant in Smyrna and B.D. Bard plant in Covington. Andy Miller of Georgia Health News and Brenda Goodman of WebMD broke the story. Greg Bluestein has been following the political side of the issue for the AJC. They're all speaking with us about it this morning. 
Well, okay. So the governor Kemp sent in state regulators to check things out. And in fact, part the, the governor announced the investigation by retweeting your tweet, uh, Greg. So how is that state investigation into sterogenics going now? I mean, we're not sure. We haven't had an update, uh, at least a formal update of that state investigation yet. But what the governor's office has said is that it is throwing um, a team of, of, of investigators into looking at what happened um, and why, and, and namely, why it wasn't reported. All right. To be clear, Sterogenics did not have to disclose the leak mm-hmm. because it was not at mandatory reporting level, but the company could have chosen to, certainly. Okay, so let's get on to Covington. The other plant emitting ethylene oxide, this is BD Bard in Covington. Now, Governor Kemp demanded that it clean up its act. So what is going on there? Do you have an update for us? Well, we know that the city of Covington is planning independent testing this week, and uh, it's got a different company doing the testing. Uh, the activists who are against ethylene oxide in that area are fairly pleased with the process so far in terms of testing. They, they hope to see a weak results of uh, how much emission is coming out, and, and I, I think it'll be interesting to compare that testing to the testing in Smyrna. Yeah, because it's, as Brenda mentioned earlier, the, the census tracts indicate much higher cancer levels in those places, correct? Correct. So it, it, now this plant in BD Bard in Covington also had a leak a couple years back, but this was before the EPA had reclassified ethylene oxide as a, a highly carcinogenic chemical. So what happened then and, and what's the risk for leaks now? Who wants to pick that up? Brenda? Um, well, I, I don't know about the, the leak at BD Bard, but um, one thing that's been really concerning about these plants is that in the 1990s, they were allowed to disconnect something called the back vents from their chambers, from their pollution controls. And so for we know for years they have been emitting straight to the atmosphere um, ethylene oxide because they have not had to have these back vents from their chambers connected. So that's a constant daily, every single cycle kind of thing. Um, it's not just a one-time leak. So what kind of tests are being conducted in the Covington area? They're just taking air quality measurements. Right. They're taking, they're using something called SUMA canisters. Um, They look a little bit like a big basketball. They're silver. um, And they, uh, you can set them to draw air in at a certain rate. um, And they take them back to a lab and they undergo very um, strenuous testing to find very tiny amounts of this chemical. Now, Andy, you reached out to citizens in Smyrna and Covington for your reporting. What did you hear back from residents there? You know, they were uh, surprised. They were absolutely surprised about what these plants were actually doing when we first talked to them. Secondly, they were surprised that the fact that they didn't know about what they were doing, the, the fact that the state and really federal regulators hadn't informed them of the potential dangers. Uh, we're hearing that they're concerned about their health, their neighbor's health, if there's a cancer in their family or their neighbor's family. They're also concerned about their home values. And in Smyrna, we, we've seen that there's uh, quite a bit of angst about home values going down as a result of uh, these reports. Right. So the, the oversight committee meeting is open to the public, scheduled for 11 o'clock today. This is at the Magnolia Room of the Smyrna Community Center, 200 Village Green Circle, so open. Greg, this story has so many moving parts. Mm -hmm. I know all three of you are going to keep covering it. But from a political perspective, what are you watching to see how it unfolds? I've been intrigued by the different political reactions around sterogenics. Mostly Democratic lawmakers have all called for the plant to be shut down and new pollution controls to be installed. It's about a dozen employees there. 
But over in Covington, where it employs, it's the second or third largest private employer in, in the counties. It's a much bigger part of the, of the county's economy. Bipartisan lawmakers, for the most part, have not called for it to be shut down, but instead called for more testing. So it's very interesting, uh, different responses there. So I'll be watching to see what actually happens with these calls. How about you and Andy, Brenda, what kind of questions do you still have that you would love to see answered? We're really intrigued by the pretty high ambient levels they've been finding at the, the South DeKalb monitoring site that's supposedly nowhere near any industrial emissions of ethylene oxide. So we're wondering where is it all coming from? Um, so we're, we'd be really interested to get those questions. And Andy, watching people uh, mobilizing in Smyrna and Covington, what does that response really look like? It's it's incredibly grassroots and and in some cases it's it's really important topics that they're discussing. Uh, the Smyrna group has scientists who are community members who are looking at this issue and the fact that the permit application by Sterigenics to make these changes they're they're really digging deep into what's happened some of the flaws and the in the perhaps gaps in that application. I, I think people have really come up to speed very fast on what this gas is and what it can do to their communities. Andy Miller of Georgia Health News, thank you so much for speaking with us. Great to be here. Brenda Goodman of WebMD, thank you again. Thank you, Virginia. They broke the story back in July that plants in Covington and Smyrna have been, for a number of years, emitting a toxic gas. Greg Bluestein has been following the political side of the story, among other things, for the AJC. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. All right, you can join the conversation on our Facebook group, GPB Radios on Second Thought. Do you live near the Sterigenics or BD Bard plants? Are you worried about the air you breathe? Are you taking measurements, putting up air filters, other kinds? of interventions. Leave us your comment on our Facebook page and we may just read it on the air. You can also reach us on Twitter at OST Talk. Email us at onsecondthought at gpb.org or leave us a message at 404-500-9457. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. We are back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Cities are dynamic things. Atlanta may be aggressively so. It catapulted from regional city to international metropolis in a generation. Variously called the capital of the New South, the South's Black Mecca, a city in a forest, and hip-hop's center of gravity, often celebrated in song, like this one, Ludacris's Southern Hospitality. Atlanta is the antithesis of homogenous and resists being summarized or captured in a single part or moment or happening, which is kind of the perfect setting for pop-up zine Atlanta. Stories on stage in a camera-free zone, no recordings, no photos, no tweets, no posts. It's a local offshoot of the performed journalism made popular by Pop-Up Magazine. So instead of sitting down alone and leafing through a magazine, the variety of articles are performed for a shared audience in that moment and then... Poof, they're gone. Cultural producer, writer, and documentarian Floyd Hall was inspired to make that fleeting magic happen locally. He's the driving force behind pop-up zine Atlanta at Windmill Art Center in East Point on Tuesday, October 8th. Floyd, so nice to have you back. So glad to be back with you, Virginia. Thank you for having me. Well, Floyd's also a contributor to this magazine on stage, along with Hannah Palmer, who's a writer and author of a memoir called Flight Path. Hello, Hannah. Hi, thanks. 
Thanks for being here. And also photographer Antonio Johnson will be a contributor, as am I, by the way, interviewing a very special guest. Hello, Antonio. Hello. So Pop-Up Zine is meant to be experienced in the moment. So we're not going to preview any of the stories, but instead we're going to expand on some of the ideas that you saw taking shape, Floyd, as you were hearing from the contributors. What, what were they? Well, I think, as you mentioned in your opening, Atlanta means a lot to different people. And I think that as we think about the city as it moves forward in a variety of ways, I think about how we tell those stories. And I think that Atlanta, as a city that has a proud legacy, there's always a balance of how do you acknowledge that legacy, bring that forward, but also making space for people who are wanting to invest in the city as it is now and then as it is going forward. And so with Pop-Up Zine, uh, I wanted to be able to sort of save space for people to tell their Atlanta stories. There, Atlanta, I think, is a key there. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a joke here, of course, that nobody in Atlanta is from Atlanta. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you've all have heard that. But Floyd, you and Hannah are from Atlanta. Antonio and I are not. Antonio, you moved to Atlanta, I think, within the past year, right? December of 2018. So yep. you're a newbie. I'm brand new. So why Atlanta? What was your image of the place that you wanted to that you wanted to be a part of? So. I had been to Atlanta a few times when I was growing up. I came on many, many college tours, and I wasn't really impressed with the city. But once I started working on my project that explores black barbershops, I kind of just fell in love with the city. And I was here for two weeks and was like, you know what? I think this is going to be home. I had got tired of the, you know, rat race that was happening in New York and wanted to slow things down a little bit, but also avoid having a winter. And uh, it just felt right. Well, I do not miss shoveling one single bit, I would not tell you that all. much. But your project is called You Next, and we'll post a link to see it because they're beautiful photos of black barbershops across the country. And Hannah, you grew up in Forest Park, so your book Flight Path is very much about connection to place and the homes, in your case, three houses in uh, Mountain View, lost when the land was annexed for airport expansion, which is a huge moment in Atlanta history. What did that do to your sense of community and place where you lived. Well, when communities are displaced and you lose the connection to a geography or a physical place, you start to rely on this social network. And I, I use that word pre-Facebook. I'm talking about this social infrastructure of communities that are formed through churches and through activities and through common interests. So that can be fluid. That's not always attached to a place forever. But I love that Floyd included uh, the South Side sort of story, the airport area. I mean, I, I never have lived in the city of Atlanta, but I've always lived on the fringe of Atlanta. And uh, those stories, the airport area, the South Side, um, are just as much a part of what defines the city as being inside the city limits. Right. You and uh, actually all of us have lived in Brooklyn, <laughs> I yeah. think. No. And then all of us, you're back in Atlanta on the South Side with your family. So Floyd was talking about your Atlanta, and I'm wondering if you think that your Atlanta, if you have a concept of that, and is it defined by space, or is it defined by a time, like an era, maybe a before and after? I think a lot of people colloquially tend to point to the Olympics as their before and after moment. I think for a lot of people, that was such a dramatic shift in what we knew the city to be through construction, through expansion, through branding. And so I think that for me personally, the culture of the city through the music and through the art has always been the rallying point for me for how I think about the city. And so as that evolves, I think all of us kind of evolve with it, but there's still some disconnection between that and what happens 
on the ground per se in the city. Right. What what happened? You know, how do you build a future when you're in a place? Think about like, oh, wasn't it great when this happened? And that's something I think that really comes across in Hannah's writing: the kind of connection to place, but the connection is based on people. And for you, Antonio, you know, your photographs, it's like the human beings that animate a place make a place. But I'm so glad you mentioned the Olympics because I remember reading the architectural critic Paul Goldberg. He was writing about Atlanta just before the Olympics. And I, I pulled a little quote here. Only one aspect of Atlanta is truly Southern, and that's its ability to sugarcoat its ambition. Atlanta has manners, unlike, say, Houston. This city is not above trying to charm its way into the circle of major cities, but builds a mass transit system and one of the world's biggest airports just in case. So there's something a little snide and a little patronizing about that, but also a nod to being distinct from other places. So let's go to that, that push to host the Olympics. That was when, that was like saying Atlanta has arrived and crossed into this fraternity of big herbs. What did it mean to people living here? Hannah? I, I've been told that before the Olympics, when you were traveling, you had to say you were from Atlanta, Georgia. And after the Olympics, you just said Atlanta. <laughs> and there was a better understanding of the city on the world stage. But back to your original question about is it a time or is it a place, I feel like by staying in one place for a very long time, I've watched the city change into multiple identities around me over time. And that's been a fun exploration with my family to see how we become part of the new Atlanta as it arrives every decade or so. So how about for you, Antonio? You came to a place that you had gotten glimpses of when you were growing up, and then you came to settle. I mean, that's a big commitment. What does that place mean to you now? Atlanta feels like home for a lot of different reasons. One, because of the what Floyd was mentioning, the influence of hip-hop here. I've always felt really connected to it. But I've also, as I've gotten older, really wanted to find a place to put some roots down. And I don't know if it is the chicken at Busy Bees or uh, the hospitality here. It just feels like, feels like home. We're talking about connection to place, in this case, the city of Atlanta, with my guests, Floyd Hall, Hannah Palmer, and Antonio Johnson. They and I will all be contributors to Pop-Up Zine Atlanta, which is coming up on October 8th. And there's going to be a real exploration there in many different ways, many different facets of what is the connection to place? What is Atlanta? There is this kind of trap of nostalgia we feel for a place that was. I mean, let's acknowledge for some people that's romanticizing antebellum Georgia. For, for you, Antonio, Antonio, it might be the energy of Atlanta's growing hip-hop scene in the 80s and 90s that drew you here. But the thing about nostalgia is it's an overview. It's not detailed. And, and that sense is shifting now that we can pick up our phones and scroll through pictures of times and places we, we never could have known. How does that change our sense of place in the present and, and in the future? Well, I think there's a difference between nostalgia, memories, and history. And I think that um, how all of those things flow together depends on who's there to tell it. And I think that to your point about the Olympics and maybe um, that being a moment of coming together, but also maybe even division, um, I think a lot of people from that moment and forward have always felt like some people got ahead and some people got left behind. And I think there's always been this tension in the Atlanta area around who gets further ahead and who gets left behind. I believe that there's some underlying um, grappling with who gets to have a say in how we move forward. And a lot of that is rooted in, well, 
who gets to own the memories or the history to say, well, what should we look like going forward and what remains of what we used to be that we should take with us as we move forward? Right. And how do you memorialize like Plunkett Town, uh, Buttermilk Bottom, Blair Village, you know, some of the places for in, in your book that were just wiped out, Hannah? How much history do we need to know in order to be in a place? I know where I live in East Point, we recently changed the highway signs from Fort McPherson to Tyler Perry Studios. Huh. And there was a moment of shock and then pride and excitement about what it's going to be like to, you know, drive down the road every day with Tyler Perry's name over my head. So we see between street names changing and, uh, you know, new generations deciding what's worth memorializing. I find it a very exciting change. And I think um, I've become kind of suspect or suspicious of too much nostalgia around a history that was written to memorialize and celebrate the Civil War. So young people who are coming up and um, advocating for new memorials for lost places, I think we need to listen to them, and I'm excited to hear how they rebrand and rename the, the city around us. How about for you, Antonio, as somebody who's relatively new to the place, like how are you finding out about what was? Is it important for you to know the history? I think it's really important for me to know the history because I like to be a part of the forward progression that the city makes. So knowing um, what things were um, and how they got to be what they are now is really important um, to understand, but to also inform some of the work that I do as a photographer. But to, to Floyd's point, there's a, the history always contains like who was left in and who was left behind. Mm -hmm. So how do you get your history? Like what version do you listen to or look for? I, I look for all of the all of it, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Like yesterday I had a crash course in the whole public school fiasco. Having that crash course was interesting to me because education is something that I feel like everyone needs to have access to. And I don't think the South has always been really open to educating everyone. And that ordeal kind of shed light into what, you know, what the issues were and how we can move forward with that. Well, this is something that's the rela relationship with history has come up into sharp focus. And, you know, how do we memorialize? How do we sort of keep the past alive? But as you were saying, Floyd, make room for for what's coming and, and not be afraid of it. I think we have to be willing to do the work, both the work of listening and and diving deep or diving back to make sure that we are both acknowledging the, the rose petals and the thorns of what that was. Um, in terms of uh, history, but also I think that, and I think about this in my own family, my mom and dad weren't from here. So I'm a first generation Atlantan in my own house or in my, in my own family, right? And so not everyone gets to just be from a place and say, oh, I'm from Atlanta. As beautiful as it is to be a native Atlantan, I think we have to do the work to extend and open ourselves up to their stories and their perspectives, but also grapple with how that fits into an expanding narrative like it can't just be one or the other we have to sort of have and create space to do both and expand that because if you don't do that i think you sort of end up with these really uh, difficult tension points that don't allow us to move forward and you end up on social media sort of fighting some of these battles that really don't end up anywhere. Yeah, I hear a lot of that either or thinking like, I'm, I don't go to that shop because they tore down that restaurant where I used to go. You know, I, I liked it better when Rhea's Bluebird, you could just walk in without having to wait, you know, kind of thing. Like that's what I have heard, the idea that, oh, if they're building these new apartments, it's just going to make more traffic for me. You know, and I understand that. I absolutely understand that. I mean, it's one of those things where it can never always be the old way that it was. Like that's just not possible. And I think the longer we hold on to that, 
I think that we are limiting um, our imagination for what the future could look like. And we need to look at change both to the physical city and to the culture of the city as an opportunity to change, let go of some bad practices, some bad development kind of scenarios that we've had for a long time, sprawl, um, ignoring our natural resources and rivers and creeks, but also, you know, the, the built legacy of Jim Crow. We have the chance as we're rebuilding to repair a lot of damage that we did um, when Atlanta first exploded in, in the post-war era. The same goes for inviting new people in. Like, you know, we're always going to be a growing city. That's the wonderful thing about Atlanta. So how do we make space for new voices and new cultures to, to question the scripts that we've been running about who we are? I find that exciting. It is exciting. And you are also, Hannah, you know, someone who's looked at Atlanta from an urban design perspective, especially after your experience living in uh, an area that was basically bulldozed for uh, the expansion of the city. And of course, we're living in a place where, you know, interstates, the, the urban renewal, classic urban renewal moves, interstates like basically used to destroy black neighborhoods. So how do you design for a city to include? Um, I, if I had the answer, I would be a global expert. Um, certainly, the, you have to start with the community, listening to them and what success would look like for them and what they need instead of the top-down approach. So we, we looked at this map from 15,000 feet and decided to put the road here. Um, it's about listening to users. It's also a, a question of scale. Um, do we really want 18 lanes of freeway going through the heart of the city? Is that going to create the city that we want? Can we scale back some of these things like roads and provide different options for transportation for people who don't want to drive alone everywhere they go? The process is different, too, because I think there's more women and people of color involved in planning and design um, at the very top levels, not to mention elected officials. But I, I hope that Planners of the future are more inclusive just by listening and engaging the community and recognizing the lives that are affected by decisions made from on high. If you're describing Atlanta to somebody and think without this, it would not be Atlanta. Do you have something in mind? Black people? For, for me, it's the combination of nature and the city. I'm going to have to echo Floyd, black people. It's so I love going to Centennial Park on Sundays and seeing all these little black kids playing the fountains. And they are just having so much fun, so much joy. And I feel like that sums up my Atlanta experience. Antonio Johnson, thank you so much. Thank you. Antonio Johnson is one of the contributors to Pop-Up Zine Atlanta at Windmill Arts Center in East Point on Tuesday, October 8th at 7. And Hannah Palmer, thank you. My pleasure. Hannah Palmer, author of the memoir Flight Path and also a contributor to Pop-Up Zine Atlanta. Floyd Hall, thank you very much. Thank you. Floyd Hall, a writer, documentarian, and cultural producer of the Bottom of the Map podcast, among other things. He is the driving force behind Pop-Up Zine Atlanta. I will also be one of the contributors. My article will be an interview with a very special guest. There's more information on the event at gpbnews.org. And we're leaving you with the song AT Aliens by Outkast. But after the break, we're going to hear from a band that says L.A. all over it. But they're on their way to Atlanta. John Doe and Exine Cervenka from X. When Non Second Thought continues, I'm Virginia Prescott. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. 
The first wave of punk rock growled out of the economic and social malaise of New York and London in the mid-1970s. But Los Angeles played a huge role in what came next, when punk's energetic DIY ethos began to diversify, cross genres, and sprawl like the vast city itself. That's the song Los Angeles from the seminal L.A. punk band X. Three years ago, X's singer and bassist John Doe and music publisher Tom DeSavia pulled together first-hand accounts of the nascent scene from members of L.A.'s tight-knit punk community. The resulting book, Under the Big Black Sun, was nominated for a Grammy. The follow-up, More Fun in the New World, covers 1982-88. to when L.A. bands like the Go-Go's became MTV superstars, when skinheads and hardcore split the scene, and before, as DeSavia puts it, hair metal won the L.A. Sunset Strip Civil War. John Doe will be at the Highland and Ballroom Lounge on Sunday, September 22nd at 2 o'clock to discuss the book and to sign it. And a couple hours later, X will be performing at the Tabernacle. Thrilled to have John Doe and Xine Cervenka, two founders of X, join me now from KPFA in Berkeley, California. Hello and welcome to both of you. Hello. Thank you. Today you can go to the punk section of any record store and find a lot of material, but it did not exist back then. So what was it that drew you, John, young man from Baltimore, or Exene, just what, 19, 20-year-old from from Florida, to the punk scene? Oh, uh, probably just being a contrarian and uh, not fitting in in other bands in Baltimore or being a poet uh, or working in poetry and trying to make a living or, you know, trying to thinking that we could foolishly thinking that we could have a career in music. Well, it seems to have done pretty well so far. You're what, 42 years in rolling. So far so good. It was some good accidental planning. It sounds like. Well, I think it was fate. Um, Exene moved there maybe six months before I did and, we met each other and, and things happened. Well, in the mid to late 70s, around L.A., there was this big punk scene developing. You had bands like the Screamers, the Germs, the Weirdos, the Dickies, the Zeros, the Dills. Let's hear a little bit from the Dills. This is called Class War. What was that L.A. looking like when you got there? Uh, I didn't go there for music. I, I'd heard some, you know, I had heard Patti Smith and the Ramones in Florida, but my goal to get to Los Angeles was just to get out of Florida. I didn't think past that. And um, I met John, and he told me that there was music being played. But I was a poet. I didn't really sing. I'd never sang. So it was, um, the good thing about punk was anyone could do it. And if you were really good, like, you know, my band is, you know, there are a lot of really talented people, but you didn't have to have anything going for you. You just had to show up and put on some outfit you made up and just have the nerve to get on stage. Punk rock, the popularity gives rise to punk fashion. You know, what started as stick poke tattoos and safety pins as earrings. What, what is it like for you watching this happen? Well, I never followed anyone's fashion and I never would. So I just made up my own thing, you know, little black sweaters and the rhinestone jewelry and the pins and all that. Um, but I think that's what punk was. I had that. Other people had theirs. You know, there was a book. I forget what that book was that came out. <clears throat> yeah. Jim Jacoy. Jim Jacoy did this book, Cobra Desperate, and it's just his Polaroids from the very early scene, and everybody's in it, and there's no credits of who anyone is. 
And what's so great about it is it's all in color. And every single person there has a different type of outfit on that they made up themselves. Some have red lipstick and some have safety pins and then they got their spiky hair and then somebody else has on a fedora. It's, it's just a great representation of how eclectic and individual that was. I think what, what's great about punk was it was about the individual. And if there's anything we're headed towards, it's the total annihilation of any individualities. Was the book named for your song? We're I believe so. Well, then we should hear it. Yeah, let's play We're Desperate. That's We're Desperate from X's 1981 album Wild Gift. A couple of the contributors to the book mention that as punk develops, this subculture that championed individuality starts to impose its own orthodoxy. And fans start to draw lines in the sand and say, you know, that's punk rock, that's not punk rock. And then they splinter into ska and cowpunk and hardcore. And this line between dancing and just plain fighting starts getting blurred. And this is a split forecasted in some ways by Penelope Spheris' amazing but terrifying documentary about L.A. punk. It's called The Decline of Western Civilization. Here's a clip. I mean, you know, the punks, you know, punks against hippies, that's another thing if the hippies are starting it. But then again, punks against punks, you know, that's not, it's not what it's meant to be. Well, so like, yes, okay, it, so it, things just, they change. See, see that this, this is the odd thing, is that as you're experiencing it, you, you're, you're holding on to something that is evolving. And so when the decline of Western civilization, the, the movie came out, we were mad because it was nihilistic. And it was, it was all these young kids who were, who to our mind were messing up our scene. Well, what we were sad about is that the, the previous scene, you know, a scene from two years before that, which was really open and included the plugs and, uh, and the go-go's and the alley cats and the weirdos and all these very eclectic bands, that, was, that really wasn't happening then. What Penelope Spheris did is that she was showing the way that it was changing into this more testosterone-driven, darker thing. So it was actually a, a great uh, representation of what was going on then. And then when, when it's evolving into hardcore taking over or, or you know, having to compete with a, a, on a national stage, then you're like mad because you just want to do your thing, man. <laughs> well, you couldn't. I couldn't go to shows because yeah. of it. I couldn't go see Black Flag. I couldn't yeah, go see any any hardcore bands. I wasn't allowed to be in the audience because you were a woman, Maxine. No, because I was Maxine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people would come up. We we would want to go see our friends like uh, Keith Morris and in his band, the Circle Jerks, or Fear, or you know Flipper, or any of these other bands. And as the hardcore audience came in, they didn't really get it. So they thought, oh, John and Maxine. They've made two LPs, and they've actually sold out the whiskey a few times. So you must be rock stars. Mm. So you're, you're not allowed here, and they would give us a bunch of attitude. And, of course, me being 26 at the time would give it right back. And that was, <laughs> that was a losing game. So we just decided, okay, I guess we can't go to those shows anymore. So we would go see Rank and File or Lone Justice or, you know, some rockabilly bands, uh, you know, or Carl Perkins or, or yeah, Big or Joe Turner or <clears throat> Bo Diddley and yeah. people that were still playing at, yeah. at the time. But Well, that, that kind of rockabilly old-time country sounds more aligned with your music anyway, which is not that fast-threshing hardcore. Let's hear a song that gives us a sense of that. This is X's Breathless. Breathless. 
I'm speaking with Exine Cervenka and John Doe from the formative punk band X. They're going to be playing in Atlanta with Squeeze on Sunday, September 22nd at the Tabernacle. And John Doe is going to be talking about his new book, More Fun in the New World, earlier in that day at the Highland Inn Ballroom. Well, the new book picks up when the bands that you started yeah. touring, started playing, then club bands started touring. They started getting big. You know, they started getting a following. Mm-hmm. They started getting record deals. When one of the bands that comes through the L.A. punk scene goes absolute bananas huge, the Go-Go's. So we got the beat, the Go-Go's. People probably don't associate, I think they were called, America's Sweethearts on a magazine cover with the punk scene that produced X or the Weirdos. And, and you know, I get the impression from, from your last book, Xene, your what you wrote in the last book and others, that there was a, a really tight, supportive, creative community. So what did this huge commercial success mean for people who came up in that community? It meant nothing. It didn't. It didn't change anything for anybody else. It wasn't like we all got signed after that, or all of a sudden it was a big deal to be a woman in a band. I think it was just they were very unique, and I think they were the first band that that went to number one. That was an all-female musician band who wrote their own songs. It was a huge deal. Of course, they should have. They should have done well. I'm glad they did well. Um, it made the, us, the rest of us feel kind of a little bit left out, of course, because. There wasn't really much difference between them and the other bands as far as who we were and what we did with our lives and how we hung out. Well, I think she says something uh, about uh, how they started getting jealous of each other, that, you know, they were arguing with each other over royalties. So this kind of camaraderie was torn asunder. Well, you don't get a a manual (laughs) how to be a, a top 10 band once you enter the top 10. Here's your manual. If you'll refer to page 127, you'll find out what to do when, when the drummer finds out that there's actually publishing royalties. <laughs> and she loses her mind because you what? Um, it was mystifying to, to all of us that, that the Go-Go's weren't signed earlier. I mean, they were a slam dunk. Are, are you kidding? What? Why can't you sign? Because people wanted to hold on to what became classic rock. There's a very funny story in the book of Dave Alvin, who was then with the Blasters, and now he's a guitarist for X, meeting with record company executives in L.A. playing this new song that he just loved called Kathleen. Can, can you tell us that story? <clears throat> the Blasters had a record on Slash, then the second record was on uh, Warner Brothers. I think this was for the third record, and Dave comes into some A&R you know, meeting, which are always uncomfortable. And... Um, he plays a song he's particularly proud of called Kathleen, and it ends with Gene Taylor, their piano player, doing this extended kind of crazy solo where the rest of the band has fallen away, and he's just just wailing, and, and, uh, and then it ends, and there's this dead silence, and that's usually a bad sign when there's dead silence. <laughs> <laughs> so, so then this young A&R guy says to Dave, says, oh, man, that's... That's really something. That's that's great. I, your fans are going to love it. It's just it just sounds too much like the Blasters. <laughs> you know, really, what had happened in in that um, 
you know, say from 1981 to 86, is that we weren't just making songs to, you know, and I'll include X in this as well. We weren't making just songs like just making stuff up and just playing it for our, you know, friends and things like that. We were suddenly competing, in quotes, with everybody else that was making records. Yeah. That's how the record companies looked at it. I don't think that punk rock was really co-opted until years later, you know, when Green Day and Rancid actually were in the top 10. And I like Billy Joe. I think he's a good songwriter. I think that the Green Day has got some great songs and <clears throat> and so does Rancid. Um, there's some other bands that I, I don't care for from that era, but that was when it, it actually got to the audience it was designed for, which is kind of teenagers who are feeling rebellious and they, you know, in, in 78, it was bohemians and it was artists and it was people that just were, you know, didn't, didn't want to fit in or didn't fit in. So, you know, when it gets into hot topic, then you can say, Oh God, <laughs> this <gone>. is, <laughs> you know, then you could maybe say punk is dead, but it's not. For somebody who's growing up today, maybe one of those kids looking for something different, what would you say to them now? You know, they can't go to LA and live in a, you know, $2,000 a month apartment and make punk rock, right? Sure they can. Well, they, just they, have, they, they, they're, they're, you know, you live on the outskirts. At, you absolutely can. Well, I would say you, you, you can live in L.A. with a whole bunch of people in a, in a, in a crappy place for sure. Yeah. But that's what everyone did back then anyway. Nobody lived in an expensive, nice place, hardly, right? No. All, no we all, all lived places. in little crappy places, three or yeah. four people to a little but, apartment. Yeah, but they were, you know, $180. Yeah, for sure. Where there is a will, there's a way. But also, you know, the legacy of, of what punk rock stood for and stands for is, is that you can apply it to different art forms. There are a lot of uh, people that are very influenced by punk rock that are, that are coming up nowadays. Um, girls Rock Camp has, the, the girls that started in that have grown up and now they're in their 20s and they're kicking ass. So there's a, a few of them that we play with and, and you see it all over social media. Um, right on righteous boys and girls, men and women in punk rock bands. So you absolutely can do it. You go, kids. Get out there. Play the punk rock. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I mean, I, I hate to keep going back to this, to this book, but that's one of the things I say at the end. We're all here to just be part of a continuum, and we're all here to be brave to, to allow someone who's coming up behind us to, to you know, help them out. And uh, when somebody else passes away, uh, you go, damn, that's, that's a drag. But they, they were out there and they did their thing and they deserve honor and they deserve credit. You know, that's one of the reasons that X is still playing. You know, not only is it our work, that's our career, but every time I see uh, a young woman who's 16 or 18 and, and she's looking up at Xene going like, damn, she's cool and wow, she's something and she's like ferocious, I think we did our job. Well, we're going to just hold on to that. Yeah. John Doe. We'll see you in Atlanta. Oh, yeah, thank you, you so there. much. Exine Cervenka, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you very much. Very thoughtful, and, and uh, thank you for facilitating that. That's great. Exine Cervenka, an artist and founding member of the legendary punk band X. They're playing Sunday at the Tabernacle. 
John Doe is also a founding member of X. His new book, More Fun in the New World, dives into the legacy of L.A. punk music. It's out now. There's going to be a book discussion and signing hosted by Acapella Books also on Sunday at 2, but at the Highland Inn Ballroom Lounge. I had a longer conversation with John and Exine about the breakdown of the family that led to a lot of kids looking for community, a significant edit to the song Los Angeles, and a number of other things. And you can hear that full interview at gpbnews.org. That is it for On Second Thought today. We're going to leave you with another song from X. This is I Must Not Think Bad Thoughts. This conversation was part of our September music series, and you can follow along with our coverage and add your own perspective using the hashtag GPBLovesMusic. We're on Twitter at OST Talk. You can find us on Facebook at GPB Radio's On Second Thought. And let us know, what do you think is today's version of punk rock? On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Nyswanger is our engineer. We had help today from Alex Word. Our interns are Allison Krausman and Jessica Lowell. Don Smith is our dean of grammar, probably gritting his teeth right now. Amy Kylie is senior producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with On Second Thought. <laughs>